Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker, and it's my privilege to be working with you through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the pastor preacher in Victorian London and beyond, who was so much blessed with God in what he spoke and what he wrote, uh, both in terms of sermons taken down and distributed, and also some of the uh, other books that came from his pen. We work our way week by week through the sermons of Charles Spurgeon. We're coming toward the end of volume nine of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, and we've reached sermon 518. If you're a regular, you'll know that we read through a sermon a day, and this week it's 514 through to 520, and uh, each week a featured sermon forms the subject of our podcast. And this week it is the bridgeless gulf from Luke 16, verse 26. Beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. If you want to know more, then you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can sign up at mediagratii.org slash podcasts for a weekly newsletter uh, identifying the featured sermon and the week's reading. But now, on to our featured sermon, The Bridgeless Gulf. This sermon, like others that we've commented on recently, has a uh, shows an awareness of Spurgeon's uh, balance of ministry and the people who are in front of him. He says in his opening sentence, For the last few months I've been led to blow the silver trumpet, sounding forth the love and mercy of our God in Christ. Many times in your hearing I have preached a full Christ for empty sinners and have set forth the freeness and graciousness of the divine proclamation which in the gospel is made to the chief of sinners. I have not, concerning that point, shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. But I feel that I must now blow a blast upon the rough ram's horn for sometimes our congregations need to be reminded of the law and terrors of God and of the judgment to come. Our experience is that the preaching of judgment is greatly blessed of God. We have remarked that a very large number of conversions have occurred under those sermons in which the declaration of God's wrath against all iniquity has been the most plain and solemn. Now, Spurgeon isn't just making a pragmatic judgment, oh, it's time for a bit of hellfire and damnation, as it were, but rather he is conscious of the need that his ministry must cover the whole territory of God's word, that it must strike each point in its proper place and proportion, and that he does indeed desire God's blessing upon his labours. More than that, though, he goes on to say that he's following the Lord Christ himself, we find our blessed Lord and Master, whose heart was overflowing with compassion and whose very nature was love, often dwelling upon the wrath to come. And indeed, his utterances are more telling and terrible than the most burning threatening from the lips of thundering seers of old. So Spurgeon is seeking to stand where Christ stood and speak as Christ spoke, out of a heart of compassion. Now, it's important that we understand that because the preaching of divine judgment is not a sign of, of hatred. Uh, this isn't a, a cold theological lecture, nor is it a, a railing against God, nor an angry rant against people that someone might get what they deserve. Rather, this comes from a heart of Christ-like concern for those who are lost. These are the needful warnings and reminders 
and Spurgeon talks about the gulf which no human skill or engineering ever shall be able to bridge, the one chasm which no wing shall ever be able to cross, the gulf which divides the world of joy in which the righteous triumph from that land of sorrow in which the wicked feel the smart of Jehovah's sword. Now, Spurgeon does not at this point announce his headings as he often does. It may be that that's an oversight, as it were, or it may be that the purpose here, rather than announce all his headings in advance, is to allow the pressure of the sermon to build by degrees so that each section is unfolded as he goes and rides, as it were, upon the back of the point before. So an important consideration there for those of us who preach, that sometimes we we might want to hold back on some of what's coming so that the sermon develops its own natural pace and momentum. His first point then in seeking solemnly to speak upon this matter is that there is no passage from heaven to hell. They which would pass from here to you cannot. So you cannot go from heaven to hell. Glorified saints cannot visit the prison house of lost sinners. There is a a great gulf fixed. There is a chasm which divides the saints in bliss from the world of the wicked. And so Spurgeon's immediate conclusion is that the most earnest and assiduous preacher, the most careful preacher, is then going to have to renounce all hope of converting sinners. There's only one place where the preacher can reach those who are lost, and that is here and now. So he says that God has raised up some apostolic spirits, men like Baxter or Joseph Allain or Whitfield or Wesley, men who bless their age and are most truly great. Now, it's interesting in this sermon, just as an aside, that there's another sermon not far off this one where Spurgeon says that Baxter and Elaine can sometimes overdo some of their particular preaching. Uh, There is an emphasis there of which they need to be careful and we need to be careful. But in this context, he's saying that at least the, the earnestness with which they preach, the forcefulness with which they speak, that that is truly commendable. But the problem is, in this context again, that once the opportunity is passed, there is no further chance for that preacher to reach those who are now in the blackness of darkness forever. The efforts of the most importunate visitor, the one who who pleads the most earnest friend, must all cease with, with death. Some of you have friends who can get nearer to your heart than I can, says Spurgeon. You know, the preacher can't necessarily get you the way he wants to. The, the preacher can't necessarily plead with you the way that he would. But you've got friends or family and they'll come close to you. I love, he says to his congregation, brothers and sisters, to see you earnest for the souls of others. God may give you some souls whom he will never give me, and so long as they be but saved, though I have a holy covetousness and earnestly desire to bring many to Christ, yet I will as unfeignedly rejoice in their salvation by your instrumentality as if it had been accomplished by my own. He's saying, yes, I want to see sinners saved. I want to have the blessing of of seeing people come into the kingdom under my ministry. But I don't begrudge anyone's place in that great scheme whereby God uses means to bring others into his kingdom and glory. 
And so he says, we beseech you to come to Jesus. We would pluck you by your garments and beseech you to flee from the wrath to come. Forgive us for being thus in earnest, but even if we should fail with you, you will soon escape the importunities of our love. A few short months of mortal life, and then you will be far away from all religious discourses and all spiritual talk of things to come. You will be in your own company, but I warn you this will yield you little enough content. So he's saying, it won't be long before you're beyond all these pleas and sermons, all these pleadings and conversations. And so how earnest this ought to make the people of God to work while it is called today. If this is our only time for doing good, let us do good while we can. I hear sometimes people say, he says, Mr. So-and-so does too much, he, he works too hard. I hear people sometimes say, Mr. So-and-so does too much. He works too hard. Oh, we none of us do half enough. Do not talk about working too hard for Jesus Christ. The thing is impossible. Are souls perishing? And shall I sleep? My idle, lazy flesh, shalt thou keep me still while men are dying and hell is filling? This is Spurgeon saying, if we really believe what the Bible says, if we really believe what we say we believe, then we cannot afford to be lukewarm. We are not earnest enough about immortal souls. If we had but a view of the shortness of life, the fleeting character of time and the terrors of eternal wrath, if we could but see lost souls and understand their unutterable woe, we would shake ourselves from the dust and go forth to work while it is called today. And so then the second point, as we cannot go from heaven to hell, so the text assures us, neither can they come to us that would come from there. Just as the, uh, the saints in heaven cannot then travel across to hell, so the lost spirits in hell are shut in forever. And there are reasons why that is so. First, the sinner's own character forbids it. He is now set in his sinful condition. If you are not fit for heaven now, have you any right to hope you ever will be? If you die without God and without hope, where must your portion be? Without a God, can ye dwell in heaven, God's own dominions? Without hope, can you enter where hope is consummated in full fruition? Never. So the, the very fact that the fixed character of those who have died apart from and against God is against God means that there is this continued rebellion. There is no place for such a person in heaven. Moreover, not only does the man's character shut him out, but also the sinner's doom. What was it? These shall go away into everlasting punishment. If the punishment for sin, unforgiven, unrepented of, is everlasting, how can the unrepentant, unforgiven man enter heaven? What does the Saviour die? Say, where their worm dies not, and their fire is not quenched. It's, it's a fearful prospect. There is no end to the judgments of God upon those who reject his mercies. Furthermore, you cannot go out of this prison house because God's character and God's word are against you. God is just. God has spoken. God is faithful. He that does not believe shall be damned. And there's no getting away, no getting around that. God in his holiness cannot and will not accept sin. That's why he's provided a Christ in order that we might be saved. 
Furthermore, he says, there was only ever one bridge between fallen man and a holy God, and that bridge is rejected by the unrepentant, unforgiven sinner. The person of the mediator, his substitution, his righteousness, his painful death, these make the only road from sin to righteousness, from wrath to acceptance. But these are being rejected by men. And if you should ever be lost then, you will have finally rejected Christ. That's the challenge. That's the problem. That's the nub of the matter. Christ will save all who come to him but you will not come that you might have life. And then there is no Holy Spirit in the pit. That is, he is not operating there as he does here. There is no striving with men in that place. There is no exertion of the Spirit's strength for salvation in judgment. And so says Spurgeon, you do not like the house of God, then you shall be shut out of it. You do not love the Sabbath. You're shut out from the eternal Sabbath. The voice of sacred song had no charm in it for you. You shall not join it. The face of God you never loved. You shall never see it. The name of Christ Jesus was never melodious in your ears. You shall never hear it. Jesus Christ was preached to you, but you rejected him. His blood you trod beneath your feet. The way to heaven was freely set open before you, but you would not come unto him that you might have life. There is a road from earth to heaven. Sinner, though you have gone into the depths of sin, if you have been the most infamous and most outrageous of offenders, there is a road for you to heaven yet. You see, here's Spurgeon now. He's beginning to, to plead. He, he finds it, and rightly so, almost impossible to preach like this without still holding out the hope of heaven to those who would come. And so then he moves on again. Here's his third point. Yes, nothing can go from heaven to hell. Yes, nothing can go from heaven. No one can go from hell to heaven. But then nothing, nothing can come from hell to heaven. And that's the joy of the saints. This is the triumph of God's people. This is the delight of in the Lord that we have, that no temptation can come upon us, no punishment can come upon us, no assault can come upon us, no damnation can come upon us, no trouble can ever come upon us, no present pains shall be in heaven, for they are for the lost, no pains of body, no distractions of mind, you shall have no sin, sin cannot pass from them to you, you shall be perfect like your Lord without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But then again, and here he is once more, and he's flipping these things back and forth. Yes, no one can pass from hell to heaven. No one can pass from heaven to hell. No thing can come from hell to heaven. But then no heavenly thing can ever come to hell. And now Spurgeon enumerates some of the heavenly blessings that are kept away from those who are in hell. Heaven is rest, perfect rest but there is no rest in hell. There's no pause in hell's torments. The dreadful music of the eternal miserere has not so much as a single stop in it. Heaven too, a place of joy, but there's no joy in hell. For music, there is the groan, for joy, the pang, for sweet fellowship, the binding up in bundles, for everything that is blissful there in heaven is everything that is dolorous in hell. I can't exaggerate, he says. I can't come up to the doleful facts. You, you, you feel the, the preacher here. 
His heart is breaking. His sense of these things is overwhelming. He says, I, I can't speak of these things. It's, it's too weighty for me. He goes on, heaven is the place of sweet communion with God, but there's no communion with God in hell. Prayers are unheard, tears unaccepted, cries for pity are an abomination unto the Lord. That's not true now, but that's the point at which God says, my patience has expired with you. It is sorrow without relief, says the preacher, misery without hope. And here's the pang of it. It is death without end. There is only one thing that I know of in which heaven is like hell. It is eternal. The wrath to come, the wrath to come, the wrath to come, forever and forever spending itself and yet never being spent. You can, if you read this sermon through, feel the growing weight of on the preacher's soul of the things that he speaks. There's a developing intensity. There's a depth to the preacher's groaning that begins to come out as the sermon advances. And now it gives rise to a series of conclusions. He says he he doesn't have much to say to God's people. You recall perhaps a few moments ago, he did speak to them about the, the earnestness and the concern with which they ought to be dealing with men's souls, these things being true. But he wants to speak primarily now to the unconverted. I will never flatter you by preaching to you as though you were all Christians. The Lord my God knows, he says, there is many a heart here that never was broken, many a spirit that never trembled before the majesty of infinite justice, that never kissed the outstretched scepter of a crucified redeemer. And he says, I don't mean only you who live in open sin. There are many who are amiable, they're, they're pleasant and friendly, they're, they're excellent, they're admirable in your carriage and deportment. They, they live an outwardly nice and good life, but the love of God is not in them. No fault with their outward character perhaps, but not born again. They've never passed from death to life. And the same hell is for the most outwardly excellent as for the most outwardly abominable unless you fly to Christ. Christ is the great divide. Christ and faith in him is the point of difference between heaven and hell. And so Spurgeon asks a series of questions, and we've seen him do this before. First of all, let me plead with you, and I will ask you a question. Do you believe all this? Do you believe that there is a hell? Do you believe that there is a heaven to be lost? If you profess that you do not so believe, I have done with you. God bring you to a better mind. But what did you come here for? So Spurgeon, remember, is preaching to a gathered congregation. He's not saying, if you don't believe in heaven and hell, there's no point talking to you. You might as well walk away. What he's saying is, why have you come to church if you don't believe in heaven and hell? Why are you sitting under the ministry if you don't think that God's word is truth? He says, at least become an infidel, an unbeliever, and be honest. He said, I'd rather see you here outwardly unbelieving as have you pretend to be Christians and yet disbelieve what the book teaches. So now his application is particularly to those who are going through the motions of Christianity but don't actually believe the things that are spoken in the word of God. And he asks them, do you believe there's a wrath to come and that it may fall upon you in the next minute for you may be dead and never leave this house of prayer and yet do you sit easy in your pews or are you mad? 
Has sin so besotted you with its foul intoxication that you cannot think? He wants people to to face up to the fact of the, the mercy and the judgment of Almighty God. How can you be at ease in Zion, he says, if there is judgment still hanging over you? His second question then, if these things be so, have you used your senses in giving a preference to the pleasures of this life beyond the joys of heaven? In following the pleasures of today, when you know that they will be followed with the miseries of eternity. Now he says, don't get me wrong. I don't mean to say that a Christian is without pleasures. We have the highest and purest pleasure that mortal or immortal can know. We have not the pleasures of sin, but rather higher, more delightful and deeper pleasures. But this is what I mean. Will you spend yourself in sinful pleasure? Will you take that now which will bring you to judgment afterward? Will you sell your soul for a little sin, take one or two worlds in the world's mad dance, and then the devil your partner and your mirth is over? Use your reason, he says. He's not asking us to stop thinking, but to start. Judge whether it's worth your while to gain the whole world and lose your own soul. Then another question, a different angle. How is it that you don't lay hold of Christ, since this is the only time when there's a probability that Christ can be laid hold of? Throw your pride down, he pleads. Do not love sin more than the Saviour. Come as a sinner must come and lay hold of Jesus Christ. Or if it be your sin which hinders, may God the Holy Ghost help you to pluck out the right eye and cast off a right arm sooner than having two eyes and two arms to be cast into hell fire. He's pleading, you see. He's wrestling with them. Don't think like this. Don't think like this. Don't think like this. Don't think like this. Remember what's at stake. Understand what is offered to you in Christ Jesus and consider the horrors of hell and the bliss of heaven. And now, how may I lay hold on Christ? asks someone. Oh, may the blessed Spirit enable you to do it, says the preacher. Here it is. Trust Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Conscious that you deserve his wrath, trembling because of his terrible law, look to Jesus. There hangs a bleeding saviour. Methinks these eyes can see him bleeding there. There's that intensity and immediacy in the preaching again. God eternal, he by whom the heaven of heavens were made and the earth and the fullness thereof takes upon himself the form of man and hangs upon the tree of the curse. And so he quotes the hymn, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Look, he's saying, look and live. Glance at him with the tearful eye. Trust this Jesus. Come to him. Will you have Jesus to be yours, he asks. Spirit of God, lead that heart to say, Yes, Lord, I will. And as the acceptance is heard on earth, may it be registered in heaven and may salvation come to that man's heart this day. Here then is the the intensity of pleading of a man who is persuaded of the things of which he's been speaking. Remember how he developed the, the weight and the force of this sermon. No one can go from heaven to hell. And so now is the moment when the preacher, the friend, the family member must plead that the sinner would be saved. And neither can anybody come from hell 
to heaven. And so the character, the promised doom, the character of God and the rejection of Christ and the absence of the Holy Spirit in his saving ministry from the the pit of doom, these are the things that would cut away the sinner from the blessings of glory. And nothing then can come from hell to heaven. Those who are with Christ are safe, happy, eternally blessed. But that safety, that happiness and that blessing will not pass the other way either. And in hell there is no rest, there is no joy, there is no communion with God. And all this then leads to this earnest, insistent, pleading, preaching Christ to those who are lost. I ask what I often ask at this point. When was the last time that you heard preaching like this? When was the last time that you heard a man who was taken up with these things? Now bear in mind, this is not the only thing that Spurgeon preaches. What he's been saying from the beginning was that there are times when this is needful and profitable. And while he delights to make the Lord Jesus known, and while it pains him to have to speak of these things in this way, if he's to be faithful to God in Christ, he must preach judgment. And he does so with the prayerful anticipation that these things will shake out of their lethargy and their dullness some who at this point have no real thought of heaven or of hell. So if that is us, then we need to heed these things today. If we are preachers and Christians, are we stirred in our souls by the pressure of these truths to speak the truth in love to those who are lost and perishing? Do we feel the weight of these things in our families, amongst our friends, with our neighbours, with our, our colleagues? Do we love people enough to tell them about Christ and Him crucified as the only and now present bridge between the horrors of hell and the joys of heaven. This is the opportunity for us to come to Christ, to trust in him and to walk in his ways. I trust that these things will be blessed to our souls. Next week, God willing, Sermon 523 will be our featured sermon and it is From Death to Life. That's the title, and you'll see again there that we're, we're back along uh, the sort of track that Spurgeon has delighted to speak before. I trust until then, God in his mercy will be good to every listening soul. Thank you for tuning in, and I trust that you'll come again as God gives you opportunity. Bye-bye for now. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.